All right, well, good morning. Uh, today we are continuing on in our sermon series, The story, Stories of Old, A Journey Through the Old Testament. So just as a reminder, uh, we've been going through this thing called the Narrative Lectionary, uh, which is a, a resource, a tool that we can use. It's a schedule of readings. And the, the reason why we're doing this is because it gives us the, the narrative or the story of the Bible, which if you've never heard, like there is a broader overarching narrative story of the Bible. And one of the best ways for us to interact with any particular point in the Bible is to remember where we are within this timeline, the story of scripture or the story of the people of God. And so um, the way that this works is it's a four-year cycle so that at the end of it, hopefully, you know, you can connect the dots and be like, oh, we're here in the timeline. So uh, that's really behind the curtains, really in the weeds of why we're doing this. But for some of you, you care. So Others, you don't, and that's fine. Um, but uh, we're going to continue on with our, our series today, Stories of Old. And as we get ready to jump into that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, uh, we are grateful for uh, this chance to be together today. We're grateful for the gift that is this community. And we're grateful for the gift uh, of uh, your scriptures and as we turn now to wrestle with them, we, uh, we yield ourselves to your spirit. And we ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, we were in Indiana for about a month, a little while ago, as part of uh, my sabbatical. And Indiana is... Uh, it's a special place for me because, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I am a, a purebred Hoosier. Um, not that I en- enjoy the Hoosiers, but uh, uh, yeah, I was born in Indiana. I was raised in Indiana. Like, Indiana is this really formative place for me. And there's something that happens when I cross the border from Ohio into Indiana where there's a sense of like, ah. And it's not like every, it's not like everything is perfect in Indiana, right? Like, that's not the case. Like, even within my own past, like, there's certainly trauma from losing my parents and all of that. And all of that happens and comes up as I cross the border. It's, it's all the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful. It's all of that. And yet there's still this, like, ah, this is home, right? Like, if you grew, grew up in another, or a new, another state and you cross that state line, like, you know, there, there's something, there's something homeness about it, right? And so this was uh, the, the first time that since moving here we had been able to spend like an extended period of time in Indiana. And uh, there was something just really familiar about it, right? Like, it's like, oh, I, I know these roads. Like, I know that cornfield, right? Which is all, everywhere in northern Indiana. And, but there was something uh, different that happened this time around. Again, because we were there for an extended period of time, like, the familiar began to hit just a little bit different. Uh, maybe uh, you can relate to this. Like, maybe you spent some time away from home for uh, a, a bit, and then you came back for like Thanksgiving, and uh, you started to like live out the rhythms of your household again. And you're like, "Oh, this feels familiar, but this is also strange. Why do we do that, right?" Or like, you hear the way your family talks to each other, and you're like, "Ooh, that's really biting. That's not healthy. Why did I never notice that before?" Right? Like, there's something familiar, but over time, it can begin to hit a little different. And I had one of those moments while we were in Indiana, and uh, it came in the form of a license plate. So I'm sitting at a stoplight, and uh, I look up, and I see this license plate. Um, This is the Indiana In God We Trust license plate. And I don't know when these came out. Like, I remember them for almost my entire life. Like, 
they were just the thing. Like, this isn't actually the default license plate in Indiana. Like, you have to choose to get this. And yet, everybody I knew chose this. Like, whether they were a committed Christian or just, like, remotely, like, yeah, cool, whatever. Like, most people had this. My parents had this. I had it. It's still in our basement in the parsonage. Like, this was just part of the waters that we swam in. It was just, like, what you did as a good Christian, right? Like, this is how you could passively evangelize, and hopefully you don't cut somebody off and make them take this God's name in vain, right? This was just what you did. But as I'm sitting here uh, in August at this red light and I look up, it strikes me. And I find myself asking, in what God do we trust? <laughs> because as you see here, like, there's a very clear image of what's happening, right? There's the American flag, the red, white, and blue, the stars and stripe in the background. And I found myself asking this question of like, in what God do we trust? The God of the United States? The God of patriotism, the God of war, which, side note, uh, in the year 2022, this current year, our defense budget is $770 billion, which is $25 billion more than what President Biden had asked for. And some humanitarian groups suggest that $25 billion could have entirely vaccinated the entire globe, which would have put us in a very different place uh, at this point in the pandemic, yeah? It's also 13 times more than uh, what we have budgeted for any sort of diplomatic or international aid relief. So there's some God of war happening here, right? Uh, are we saying that we, the, the gods that we trust are the, the God of um, capitalism? the God of wealth, the God of colonialism, the God of slavery. Like, what, what God are we saying that we trust with this license plate? I think whoever designed it had in mind that this would answer all sorts of questions, right? But I think it actually raised far more questions for me as I sat there at that red light that day. I think this raises this vital question um, that we rarely ever turn to acknowledge, and that's the question, when we talk about God, what God are we talking about? See, we as human beings are deeply uh, religious beings. And what I mean by that is like we, we have this innate desire within us to make meaning, to find meaning out of these experiences that we have in our life, whether that be like within our own flesh and blood or our flesh and blood and another flesh and blood or the various things that happen in our life. Like we have this innate desire to find and to make meaning out of our life. And religion is a, a core way that we do that. Because religion at its core comes from a Latin word that means to bind or binding. And so religion, in a sense, is like the ways in which we bind ourselves to ultimate reality, whatever that ultimate reality may be for us. For some of us, we may feel comfortable with this language of God and claim that God is the ultimate reality, the, the truest of all true things, right? But for others of us, it may be like some sort of ideology or some... Um, some sort of philosophy or some other way of being in life. And what happens is, is when we, when we find these ultimate realities, we begin to trust in them. Because these ultimate realities begin to give us that meaning. They help us to find that purpose in our life. And so then whatever we end up trusting, or whatever we serve, or whatever we give our devotion to, or whatever we begin to pursue, or to use a really religious word, whatever we begin to worship, begins to be our God. And whatever that ultimate reality is then begins to shape us and form us in its own image. So then, whatever we trust becomes uh, a God to us. So it's, uh, it's fascinating then that at a particularly vital part in the story of Israel, the story of the people of God, their leader gets up and like pleads with the people 
to on this day declare what God it is that they will choose to trust and to serve. So this particularly vital moment comes in the life of Joshua, uh, who, um, as we read throughout the book of, as you might have guessed, Joshua, uh, is um, Moses' successor. So we talked about last week how God raised up Moses to be this liberator, this deliverer for the people of God. And Moses uh, delivers them from their enslavement to Egypt. Uh, They cross the Red Sea, which we looked at last week, and then they wander out in the desert for 40 years. And Moses brings them onto the verge of this promised land that God would give them, but Moses himself doesn't actually make it in. But Moses dies before they make it in. But before Moses dies, Joshua is raised up to be their new leader, the one who would lead the people. And so the book of Joshua as a whole is this story of Joshua, now the leader of the people of God, leading the people of God into this promised land that God had given them. Which is a really neat, clean way of talking about a really bloody, violent conquest story that I wouldn't actually recommend reading to children, especially before bedtime, right? But this would have been a really important story for the Israelites because in many ways it's, it's an origin story for them. It tells them uh, where they came from and who they were supposed to be. And as an origin story, it's, it's, it's historical in some sense, right? It's, it's written by a particular people to tell a particular uh, story to get to a particular sort of result. And like we talked about last week, Exodus feels like almost like a, a political propaganda uh, sort of thing, right? I think Joshua in some way is too. Um, and that's not like to be negative or to like uh, speak derogatorily of it, but it is to say that like it's serving a particular function as they tell the story. This is how the, the ancient people would have told their history. They would have done it with a particular spin to get across a particular sort of result. So we get then to the end of the book of Joshua in Joshua chapter 24. And Joshua is now a very old man. And Joshua is on the verge of death. And he does what like a leader would do in this position. He gathers all of the people to give them one last sort of spiel. And the way that he begins this spiel is by giving an account of, uh, uh, of their history. And he begins by talking about all of the ways that God has shown up in their history, going all the way back to the very beginning with their father Abraham. And it's as if what Joshua is saying is, God showed up and did this. 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 Bringing us to this very moment where I stand before you this day. It's almost like a long look back on God's activity throughout their life um, as a way of saying, like, this is how to move forward in, a, in response to it. Um, this is what scholars call uh, redemptive history, by the way, if you want to drop that at any holiday party coming up. Um, but it's the sense that, like, because God did that, we ought to do this. This is the, the sense that we get in uh, verse 14 at the end of this redemptive history. Joshua says to the people, now therefore, or because of all that God has done, Revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Again, the sense of like, because God did that, we ought to do this. Now we get to verse 15 and this is like the the culmination of all of this. And we read, Now if you were unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your, your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, depending upon like, what sort of uh, religious upbringing you had, 
perhaps as you read this, you get the, the sense of like an old school tent revival, right? With like the four chairs laying out in front of you and a guy in a fancy suit and a handheld mic, like saying, now you have to make a decision. Nobody? Nobody. Nope. Wow. Okay. Well, I thought I was going to be like bringing up all sorts of religious trauma for people. But anyways, um, I don't even know where to go from that. Uh, but it, this is like what Joshua is trying to do in this moment. It, this is a decision point for the people. And he lays out all of the options here. He lays out all of these gods and says, like, this is the moment. You have to choose. This is, this is the point in which there's no going back. Like, you have to choose the, in this moment what god it is that you're going to serve moving forward. Now, as you, you might guess, the way that they thought about gods and religions back in Joshua's time it's just a little bit different than the way that we think about gods and religion uh, in the 21st century. Uh, there's a biblical scholar by the name of N.T. Wright who wrote a book uh, called Paul, a Biography, which looks at the life of the Apostle Paul, who came many, 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 many years later after Joshua. Um, but I think what he has to say uh, uh, correlates pretty well to Joshua. So when you see Paul, just think Joshua and the Israelites. So he writes, in Paul's day, or again, Joshua and the Israelites' day, Religion consisted of God-related activities that, along with politics and community life, held a culture together and bound the members of that culture to its divinities and to one another. In the modern Western world, our day, religion tends to mean God-related individual beliefs and practices that are supposedly separable from culture, politics, and community life. For Paul, or again Joshua and the Israelites, religion was woven in with all of life, for the modern world, it is separated from it. So what he's saying is, is like in our, in our modern world, the way that we think about religion is um, it's all about like the, the arranging of the mental furniture in our head, right? I think about it like when I fill out a form on the internet and there's that drop-down menu and you can scroll forever and it's like, well, today I'll be Buddhist, tomorrow I'll be Baptist or whatever. And like it's all about what's happening up here. It doesn't necessarily have implications out here. But in Joshua's day, like that couldn't be further from the truth. Like depending on what God you served and what sort of religion you gave yourself to, that impacted every aspect of life. It affected your family, it affected your culture, how you dressed, what you would eat, the, the communal life, the politics, your shared life between you. Like Everything was caught up in religion and the God that you served. And so um, uh, whatever God you were trusting would deeply shape and form in an all-encompassing sense, your entire life. And so Joshua comes to this moment and pleads with the people to make this decision. Now, it's interesting if we read this closely. You'll notice um, that he uses a particular word for God. He says, now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, and then we come at the end, he says, we will serve the Lord. This word Lord in most of our uh, English translations comes like this in all capitals and it's bolded. And you'll notice like maybe it looks a little different than like Lord in lowercase um, because Lord in lowercase is a title like sir or madam. It's a, it's a sign of respect. But in Joshua's case, like that's, that's not a title. This isn't a, a sign of respect to this, this being but rather, um, Lord in all capitals is a name. It's a particular name for a particular God, Yahweh. 
And this, this name Yahweh comes to us all the way back from Exodus chapter 3 when God raises up Moses to lead the people. And Moses says to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Who shall I say to them? Or what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, which is a, a play off of this name Yahweh. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the, Lord, to the Israelites, the Lord, or Yahweh, the God of your ancestors. Not just any old God, but a particular God for a particular people, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Um, see, for, for Joshua, it wasn't just enough for the people to say that they serve God, because there were gods all around them. Every nation, every people, every tribe had their own God. Um, you couldn't just say, uh, we serve God. It would be like going out in the cemetery and saying, find a headstone, because they're all around you, right? But for Joshua, they needed to name the specific God that they were serving, because there was a particular God for a particular people with a particular name, and that name was Yahweh. And Yahweh's call in their life had a distinctive sort of flavor to it, as opposed to all of the other gods around them. And I think that this is, in some ways, where we can begin to step into the story of Joshua. Because we too have gods all around us. I don't mean this in like, you know, little mythical creatures flying around us, but I mean that there are all sorts of things that are competing and telling us that they actually are the ultimate reality in our life. All sorts of things telling us that they are the truest of all true things in our life. There are all sorts of things compelling us and begging us, trying to get us to give them our trust and to serve them. Again, these may be like the gods of the United States, the gods of patriotism, the gods of war, the gods of wealth, the gods of comfort, the, God of, the gods of security, um, the gods of fame or success, or whatever they may be. All of these things claim to be the truest thing in our lives and are compelling us to trust them and to serve them in some sort of way. And so again, we come back to this question that we started at the very beginning, and that's the question when we talk about God... What God are we talking about? For Joshua, um, the God that they were talking about was the God of their past, this particular God for a particular people with a particular name, Yahweh. This, this particular God, Yahweh, who had saved them, who had delivered them, who had liberated them, who had brought them into this land as a people. And for us as Christians, the way that we understand this God, Yahweh, has been profoundly shaped by this cataclysmic and revolutionary experience that we know as the incarnation. And so when we ask ourselves as Christians, when we talk about God, what God are we talking about? Our answer has to be the God revealed to us in Jesus. The author of Colossians, one of the letters in the New Testament, talks about Jesus like this. They write, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. 
Meaning that in Jesus, the fullness of God, all of God was pleased to dwell and God was, was, was pleased to do the reconciling work of God through this person named Jesus. Which is one way of saying that like, God is like Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the ultimate revelation that we have of God. If we want to know what God is like, we only have to look as far as Jesus. God has a face and it looks like Jesus. Now, the importance of this has become uh, all too obvious for me over the last few years, uh, particularly through the rise of this ideology called Christian nationalism. If you're not familiar with Christian nationalism, uh, here's one, one way of describing it. Uh, by the way, this comes from a professor at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. We are great at names, by the way, us Mennonites. Uh, and this comes from an article that he wrote in Sojourners. He writes, Christian nationalism, in short, is a worldview where one's theological imagination is co-opted by state power. It exchanges the church's loyalty to the Lord of peace and citizenship in God's multiracial kingdom and unarmed, multiracial and unarmed kingdom for a false god fashioned by the myth of American exceptionalism. Here's another definition for you. Uh, this one comes from a professor at Georgetown University and was in uh, Christianity Today, which if you don't keep track of Christian publications, about as far on the political and theological spectrum as you could get. Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that government should take active steps to keep it that way. Hmm. See, Christian nationalism is this belief that there's a fusion between God and country. That whatever a country does, um, it has God's stamp of approval on it. Uh, it's the sense that we are indeed a Christian nation. Whatever our, our nation does, like um, God approves of and perhaps even God ordained. It shows up in really subtle ways in our life. It is so pervasive. But it shows up in really subtle ways, like a license plate that says, In God We Trust, with an American flag behind it, right? Um, this, again, this fusing together of God and country. It can show up in the little lapel pens that politicians wear with a cross and a flag behind it. Again, a fusing together of God and country. It can show up in those little yard signs of a soldier with an assault rifle kneeling down before a cross. Again, this fusing together of God and country. It can show up in um, churches where there's a, an American flag on the same stage as a pulpit. Again, fusing together God and country. It can show up in simple phrases or songs like, God bless America. Again, this fusing together of God and country. But it can show up in really ugly, obvious sorts of ways too. Like uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. back in 2015, the former president of Liberty University, uh, which at the time was the largest uh, Christian university in the United States, who in chapel stands up and says some really derogatory remarks about our Muslim neighbors and then pats his backside as if to suggest that he has some sort of weapon and who will do anything with that all in the name of God. Christian nationalism is all around us. It's pervasive, it's subtle, it's also obvious. And I think that it is perhaps the greatest threat to an authentic expression and experience of the goodness of the Christian faith. Um, and the problem with Christian nationalism is it's not Christianity. <laughs> uh, it talks an awful lot about God, but the God that it talks about is a God that is all about power, a God that is all about wealth, uh, a God that says, conquer in my name. It's a God who says that the ends justify the means as long as we can slap the label Christian on it. Christian nationalism talks an awful lot about God, but the problem is when it talks about God, it does not talk about the God revealed 
in Jesus. So because it's so pervasive, uh, I think there, like, we have to find creative ways of trying to like, resist it. Uh, find creative ways of like, pushing back against it. So one of the ways that I do this, uh, I love crucifixes. That may be a weird thing to hear a Protestant, yet, yet a Mennonite pastor say, right? Like that's not a prominent part of, of our worship experience, but I love crucifixes. Um, I find them to be really meaningful for me. Um, and I have four of them in my office. Here's a little show and tell time here. Um, these three came from my dad. Just a little one. Um, I have no idea why my dad had this, but he did, and I like it. It's little, I set it on my door frame up so I see it when I leave. Here's another one. I think this is a crucifix. I'm not actually sure. Um, I think it's the San Damiana cross. Uh, apparently, St. Francis was praying and reflecting upon this when he heard his call to rebuild the church. Interesting. Um, also, my dad's. I don't know if this is actually jade. He would probably tell you it was jade. Uh, I'm sure it's just green plastic, but I really like it. I think it's cool. Um, meaningful, again. And then this one was my grandmother's. Um, it was on her, her mother's casket, and it hung in her bedroom all my life, and before she died, she said that she wanted me to have it, and one of my uncles mounted it and gave it to me at her funeral. So I have these in my office, but there's a particular reason why I have these. Um, because, by the way, crucifixes are a weird thing, right? <laughs> but the reason why I have them in my office is because it's, it's my answer to this question of when we talk about God, what God are we talking about? Because, see, I think the life of Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. But I think within this life of Jesus, there's like this penultimate revelation, and that is Jesus on the cross. And these crucifixes, these images of Jesus on the cross, help me answer this question of what God are we talking about? Because in these crucifixes, we see a God who is willing to be killed rather than to kill. We see a God who cries out, Father, forgive them, rather than Father, avenge me. We see a God who understands that things like love and justice and peace that are at the core of this God's kingdom are costly things, and this God doesn't even spare God's self from that costliness. And uh, in these crucifixes, we see that the God that we're talking about is a God who sits not on a throne to rule this God's kingdom, but on an instrument of death, even redeeming that. When we talk about God, what God are we talking about? I think that's such a pivotal question, and particularly in a time and space where Christian nationalism is so pervasive, I think we have to have a clear image of the God that we're talking about when we talk about God. And so I encourage you, find ways to resist this in some way. Maybe that means you stop on your way home and pick up a crucifix for your house. I have no idea where to buy a crucifix in Canton, Ohio, by the way, so you might have to do some research. But maybe there's other ways that we can resist that too. And maybe that means tapping into some good old school Anabaptist moves. And that means like refusing to say the Pledge of Allegiance or refusing to put our hand over our heart for the national anthem. Not because we hate the United States or that we think that it's uh, the worst thing in the world, but it's because our allegiance belongs somewhere else. Our love, our devotion, our, the, 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 our citizenship belongs elsewhere. And we refuse to corrupt that by uh, giving it anywhere else. Or maybe it means just committing ourselves to, to reading more and lear learning more about Christian nationalism and how pervasive it is so we can take steps away from it. Friends, when, when we talk about God, we have to ask the question, what God are we talking about? And for us as followers of Jesus, our answer has to be the God revealed in Jesus. So my friends, uh, choose this day what God you will serve. The gods of patriotism, 
the gods of war, the gods of wealth, the gods of comfort, the gods of success and fame, or the God revealed in Jesus. But as for me and my household, we will choose to serve the God revealed to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.